Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, good to be with you in this way and in this space uh, once again. Uh, my name is Nelson, and uh, I'm joined this morning by Danny Unrau, who's been serving alongside us here for a number of months already. And if you were at uh, or walked through the home liturgy a few weeks back, you've already heard one of these sort of interview homilies. And uh, so delighted that uh, Danny's willing to share some, some thoughts again with us. We're continuing on in our series called Unordinary Time, and we're drawing texts uh, from the lectionary. And uh, Danny, like me, um, is often drawn to the, to the gospel texts, it seems, uh, during this season. And uh, one of the things that he said a number of weeks back that we can't look at a Jesus text without a sense of adventure in it. And that's, that's no different with this one. So we're looking at Matthew 16 uh, from verses 13 to 20. So I'm going to dive right in and, um, and then I'll pitch Danny a question and let him run. So Matthew 16, 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So Danny, my friend, again, welcome. Thanks for, uh, for being with us in this. And right away, Matthew is giving us an indication of a change in geography. Uh, I'm guessing this wasn't by accident, but rather pretty intentional. Can you tell us a bit about... Uh, the significance of this region of Caesarea Philippi for the early readers in particular, and then we'll move on to, of course, what it means for us. Good morning, too, to all of you. Thanks. Um, huge shift. Um, the story or the event at Caesarea Philippi, um, to wax personal for a minute here, one of my favorite places, uh, having spent considerable time in, uh, in Israel-Palestine, Caesarea Philippi is a, is a favorite place. It's an old ruin. It's an old Greek ruin uh, of the original city of Pan or Ban, Banias. The Arabic speakers can't pronounce P, so they pronounce B, so it became Banias. Uh, and uh, and uh, yes, significant shift. And, and I, have to, I have to give credit to one of my professors when I was a student in Jerusalem, Dr. Danny, a double PhD at 26 already. Orthodox Jewish rabbi at 26, one of his PhDs was in New Testament. He had most of the Gospels and I think all of the Pauline epistles memorized. 
And when we would ask him questions in, in Jewish study uh, classes, he would answer with New Testament texts to answer his Old Testament uh, viewpoints uh, right off the top of his head. Uh, and I remember years later, many, many of the things that he taught me about reading the Bible and understanding Jesus. Uh, uh, of course, he wasn't the follower of Jesus, but he was more awed in by Jesus than I think often I have been myself. And so, uh, so a lover of Jesus, but not a follower, if, if you can get your heads around that one. But uh, that was fascinating. Anyway, one of the things that he said to us, which is, which is uh, uh, very rabbinical, he said, you must remember speaking to us North American wanting to be pastors at that point, many of us are, are biblical students, that often what is around the texts is as important as many of the layers within the texts. So take into account as much as you can. And again, he would then, he, his eyes would get big and he would say, because is not our creative God capable of placing fruit of truth on every word and every letter and even every space between the letters? So look for all the things that are in and around the text. And so uh, uh, there's almost no better text to illustrate what's around the text than this one and so when i saw that this was uh, the lectionary text for the day it felt like a gift for me to uh, to have this content uh, conversation so what is the context in this text uh, where's the central power of peter that central thing of course is the confessional come back to that where where peter says you are the messiah the son of the living god and then of course jesus says you are the rock by the way there's already a thing that i can't leave alone before i get to the context the rock they're up against Mount Hermon, the rock. So it refers to the rock, the mountain they're on. It refers to rock. Peter's name, Boutros, or Putros, or Petros, also means rock. A confession in the Hebraic language also is rooted in the word rock. So there's three layers of, of meaning in when Jesus responds to Peter's uh, incredible confession. The first confession we hear of, of a uh, disciple pronouncing Jesus to be Messiah. And then, of course, then Jesus says, blesses him, and then says, but be quiet. We'll talk about that a little later, I hope we've got, because, again, there it's interesting. But the three intertwining centers of context around this, of course, geography, politics, and religion, and they're all intertwined. Now, again, we're in Caesarea Philippi, which is the name given to, to Banias by Philip the Tetrarch. Philip is one of the three sons and one of the daughters of Herod the Great, who we think died around 4 BC, which creates all sorts of questions around when the birth of Christ took place. But they were named to, uh, they were given permission by Rome to oversee the territory that Herod had overseen and built uh, cities all over the place. Philip is sent to the northeastern side, so present day uh, uh, Golan Heights, and the very northern tip of the uh, Sea of Galilee is that area where Philip the Tetrarch was in charge. Why was Jesus here? Here I'm going to float a theory, not mine, of course, that, that and, and Capernaum is right, Capernaum, which we often hear, or Capernaum, or Kafar Nahum, it's the city of Nahum, uh, is right on the edge of that border into, into Philip the Tetrarch's area. Philip the Tetrarch was the least Jewish-minded and the least religious, or we could say in modern parlance, 
the most tolerant towards all religions or was religionless, so didn't provide, put any pressure on anybody to be anyway. So there is biblical theory that the reason Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum to open his, his, uh, his ministry was because he'd get away with more scandalous, radical talk in Capernaum than he would anywhere else in Judea and Samaria and even in the Galilee. So that's why he's already there. Mm. So he's in that region because he can, he can test things, so to speak, to, to really look at the human side of Jesus. Now, all of a sudden in this text, and of course it's repeated in the, in the other text too, it doesn't just show up in Matthew. All of a sudden they're at Caesarea Philippi. Why are they up in Caesarea Philippi? Well, geographically, it's the highest point in the land. It's up against this rock. It's politically safe because it's in Philip's place. And it, it's under Mount Hermon, which is the source of all the living water for, Jeru for Israel, comes from under Mount Hermon. So there's massive symbolism taking place. Plus, as a religious Jew who, who follows all the rules except those that get in the way and then are, are played uh, fast and easy with, which is another conversation, <laughs> Mm -hmm. No self-respecting Orthodox Jew would go to Banias. It's absolutely pagan. They, they're, they're, they, they're, certainly we know that they sacrificed animals there, uh, goats, uh, but there, was, there is some evidence that they also sacrificed, there are many runes there yet, uh, human beings there in one of the caves where there was a temple. But Jesus takes, and now, of course, not all of his, his disciples were, were Orthodox Jews, but that was the tone of his group. Why does he take them into this dirty place? The answer is, he is signaling that his ministry, his understanding, his work eclipses even the paganism of Banias to say nothing of what he's doing with the Jewish stuff that he's bringing with him. But the implication and the symbolism of all his conversation is there because then when he's having the conversation with his followers beside the running water there, which is still running, which is a phenomenally fresh place and in a dry and thirsty land often, uh, he, he's signaling how everything he is talking about is eclipsing and uh, eclipsing what they're hearing from the pharisaical understanding of, of Judaism. And so that relates to the land because you cannot separate the land from, from the thinking. So Caesarea Philippi renamed Banias. We're at the high point. We're in geography. We're in, in uh, Philip the Tetrarch's safe place politically uh, and also religiously because, uh, because he's eclipsing the, uh, the paganism of Banias. Here he is. He's pulled together the geography the politics uh, under Philip the Tetrarch and, and the religious thinking in there and eclipsed them all into a safe, in, in a relatively safe place. And somehow for the first time in all his conversations that we have in the New Testament with Jesus and his followers, and he, sometimes he's pretty hard on them. He says, you're still not catching on, you, you dunderheads, so to speak. Somehow up there, Peter has caught that Jesus is the Messiah. Because, because Jesus has lifted the curtain on the geography or through the curtain and, and the film of geography and politics and religion, uh, Jesus can shine through. Mm. And, and in that place, Peter has finally the wherewithal or the insight 
to say, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And of course, then, then, uh, then Jesus turns and says on this rock, which of course I complained sooner uh, or explained sooner uh, is, is just thick with meaning on it. And, and, and there's a really interesting thing that, that happens uh, right after that with that pronouncing, because, because it almost feels in the text like Jesus has ended the conversation. Well, well he does. He says, okay, on this, and, and there's, a, there's an exclamation mark period at the end of that statement, on this rock, where I will build my church and the gate of Hades will not prevail against it. And of course, in the Jewish mind, Bania, Caesarea Philippi, was the gate to heaven, by the way. Mm. That was the door to Hades, was at Banias, in the big hole in the wall uh, up, uh, at the bottom of the mountain. So, so again, no, no accidents in these texts. Every word, every phrase, every image every, is, is, is tactical, is strategic in the conversation, both uh, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, it, it, it's, it's almost nuclear inversion in how everything flies into meaning in this place. And even, even crazy Peter who talks before he thinks gets it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even Peter gets it. And uh, so uh, uh, a place, again, to speak really personally how uh, – when I walk at the bottom of the mountain and on the ruins of Banias and by the, the living waters that's running there, uh, the place to me just buzzes with, with the meaning of, uh, of Jesus' messiahship and who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, Can we just pause there too and even yes. just say break down messiah, um, even that term, and just really briefly, um, what's the significance of that title? Because um, initially he uses the son of man, who you know, refers to himself. Uh, in that way quite frequently through the, through the Gospels and particularly Matthew's Gospel. Um, but then asking um, this declaration of the Messiah, just say a little bit about what's in that. One of, one of the difficulties and why, why Peter's, or why Jesus' uh, disciples, we have, we have evidence in the text where many of them left with the crucifixion, right? Because, because that signaled the end of, they, they were still clinging to the hope that the Messiah would simply be this earthly ruler who would finally once and for all kick even Philip the Tetrarch, his two brothers and a sister, the memory of Herod the Great and the whole Roman establishment out, uh, out of the country. Of course, it got even worse. 30 years later, they came in and burnt down the temple in the city and, and it, it, it just snowballed from there. But they're still, still understanding, well, to this day, uh, they're still understanding that the Messiah is an earthly leader who will who will create a theocracy that, of course, uh, is Jewish in nature uh, and, and, is, uh, and is democratic and is this perfect utopia on earth led by this benevolent dictator, so to speak, I guess. Maybe, I, I could be taken to task on that, but uh, dictator is such a pejorative term. But, uh, um, and that's why they left in the end, because, uh, because Jesus didn't, wasn't able to explain, never got the curtain thin enough for them to understand uh, what he he really meant, that he was beyond that. But it includes all the good things that one thinks about in terms of religio 
political geographical thinking is encapsulated in the understanding of a leader like the Messiah. So he didn't want to completely destroy the imagery because it would still function. I mean, every organization seems to, seems to, we, we still need leadership somehow, somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and you hope and pray for it was, uh, was the good one. So, but, but I think the reason, the reason Jesus celebrates Messiah, uh, the, uh, Peter's comment so, so profoundly there is because he sensed that Peter finally understood that it was more than, not less than. That he, yes, he, he, because when you live in the power of Christ at one level or many levels, not necessarily all of them, it doesn't matter whether the Romans are in charge. It doesn't matter because you, you're live, you have moved deeper into another kingdom. Mm. And, and, you know, who, like many of the prisoners uh, that, that we, prisoners of war have said, we've, we've moved into a place in our head where they can hurt our body. But I mean, it's a biblical thing, but they can't get our soul. And so, Jesus was always, again, working all those layers at the same time. And, and that's why I think we're often confused by some of these texts. And certainly the men and women that were with him were confused by what he meant. Because he's speaking layered language all the time. And we could ask why. Why does he make it so confusing? Why doesn't he just write it on a blackboard? Yeah. And, and I think part of, part of the answer is, is, again, implied in this text Jesus wants us to work at this stuff. Life isn't paint by number. It's throw the paint on the, on the, on the screen and see where it goes and, and be involved in moving it around and discover the, uh, the, the miracle of what can happen at the end of your fingers. Or I heard a, a writer that uh, resonated for me yesterday on CBC radio who said, I only know what I what I'm supposed to write and what I've written after I've written it. Mm-hmm. Then I read it and say, "There it is." And and the yeah. interviewer yesterday wanted that explained, and and I don't know whether he was playing dumb or not, but he says, "I don't understand what you're talking about," and and <laughs> and I and I think artists understand what that's about. We know what that is because uh, we can even be really proud of it because it feels like we didn't even do it. Yeah, it it came out of out of us or. I've even in a counseling session, as mundane as that might be uh, for someone like me who's half untrained in counseling, I've sometimes looked around behind me to see, where did that come from? Because that certainly wasn't my wisdom. That wasn't my truth. And so Jesus is always, always working those layers of, of more than we, we're saying more than we know. When we are connecting to him, mm-hmm. then the stuff comes to bear. And the minute we think we can grab, we can, we can grab it, it can get away on us. And that's the beauty of it, because we're always, we're always skating on beautiful thin ice. And, and, and with enough trust that we won't fall through the ice. In Canada, we fall through the ice. In, in the Middle East, you fall through the water. But here, we fall through the ice. And, and we're, we're always on that, that sense. Um, but... But here's what happens next. And again, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't my insight. This was given to me by professors, again, that I was sitting with in that very place who explained that when you look at the, the flow of time through, through the narratives of the New Testament and Jesus' ministry, he takes his, his followers up to Caesarea Philippi, 
he teaches whatever he teaches there. Peter gets it. And if Peter gets it, then he, of course, tends to bring the others with him in his own uh, strange way. But with that pronouncement, I, I remember this one professor said, and he says, and imagine with me, that's when Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. And from that moment, the final drama, the, dra the final drama begins with that statement. And, and, and he noted, he says, and noted, where did he go from there? Where did Jesus and his followers go? They walked from Caesarea Philippi, past the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan Valley to Jericho, which you then turn up and go to Jerusalem. But when you're at Jericho, you're at the top end of the Sea of, of the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth. Mm. Getting back to speak geographically. When they were at Caesarea Philippi, they were at the then known world of that part of the world, the highest point on earth, and they now walk through the lowest point to then go up to Jerusalem. So again, there's the symbolism of Jesus' message eclipsed from the highest to the lowest, physically, geographically, and spiritually. And then you move up. Again, then from spiritually, then you move up to Jerusalem, which is the highest point on earth, uh, spiritually speaking. Right. Although, if I've got a minute, I can explain. I had an interesting experience when we went just north of Jerusalem to Nablus, which is still the center for the remaining uh, Samaritans. There's uh, Mount uh, Gerasim and Mount Ebal. Which are, which are the two hills, mountains on both sides of the city of Nablus, which is still the center for two or 300 uh, Samaritans. And there are the ruins of the temple that the Samaritans built, which of course, which annoyed the Jewish people in Jerusalem to no end. And we met, a group of students, we met with the high priest of the, of the Samaritans, and they were about to have their annual feast where they would slaughter the lambs and have their, their annual sacrifices. And, and the mountain we're on is not is lower, and I've got this mixed up in my old mind, whether it's Mount Ebal or Mount Garrison. I think we're on Mount Air, Air Garrison, but Mount Ebal is, is a few hundred meters taller. But, but it was asked by one of the students in our group to the high priest, why are you worshiping on this mountain and not on the other one? Because it's obviously higher. And the priest looked at the student and says, well, it can't be. He says, what do you mean it can't be? He says, it's obvious that it is higher. And he says, it can't be because we only worship on the highest mountain on earth. So it's already the highest. So, and that's kind of that, that, that Middle Eastern kind of thinking uh, to, to not be racist in that. Don't miss it. But, but that sort of Eastern kind of thinking that, that it's easier to imagine things into reality than let reality imagine itself upon you. And so, so it's just the highest. So, so high and low places, and of course, we know from reading the Old Testament, we talk about the high places and the low places and the places of worship. Again, that's not lost on these followers of Jesus. They've moved from the highest place to the lowest and then back up to Jerusalem for this highest event in human and in spiritual history. And he's getting them ready to come to the place where the whole world will be given the opportunity over timelessness to, with Peter, say, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Mm. And, and if their heads weren't buzzing by this time, then it, it, they were beyond understanding. But, of course, even then, then, then 
of course, when you're that high, you're also set up for the huge fall. And so the massive disappointment that a number of them experienced when the Romans were victorious in crucifying Christ. And of course, they had missed all of the statements that we have, we have read with the few, with the, with the little bit of writing that, that is left yet, I think. Uh, it seems it should have been clear that they caught it, but they, they didn't, and, and that, that there was a higher understanding of his messiahship, and he told them he would, uh, he would go. Yeah. Uh, but but the, the, it's, it's absolutely profound that from, from that statement of Peter's at that place, and then the movement from there, uh, how that opens the door to, uh, to the, the moving towards Jesus becoming the Messiah of the world from the highest point to the lowest. So what do we have here? Uh, we have careful thought. Jesus has obviously thought through all of this. It is massively strategic. Uh, it's an incredible total awareness geographically, politically, religiously, it's, it's, it's an enormously intelligent understanding of everything that's at play in this place. And, and, and yet presented in such a way that everyone in the room can get to, their, to the level of their own understanding. There's a, there are enough windows. It is enough of a sponge that, that you can get through any of the openings or it can leak out into you for you to take with you to understand the massiveness of this. And some can't, some won't. Uh, we're not sure that's, I mean, that's a bigger study than us. Mm. So what's the point for us? Mm. We're called, I think, clearly in this text, we are called as followers of Jesus to apply our whole being. The example being, of course, geographically, philosophically, historically, politically, uh, religiously, everything, everything that we are, with all our mind, our soul, and being, I mean, he used that text, right, mm -hmm. uh, in, in our daily walk. And it's not rocket science on the one hand, it's more than, all at the same time. This, this whole business of following Jesus. And, 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 I, and, I, and I don't think we're even, uh, we don't have to be double PhDs to get this. That's, that's part of the profundity of it all, is that just be open. Again, live with your hands open. And this stuff just drips on you, seeps into you, uh, leaks out like, like grapes in a, in, a, in a bag that hang after they've been squashed, or, or olives too. The olive oil and the grapes, they behave the same in that way. Uh, to, to open up our whole beings to, to the absolutely overarching, absolutely complete messiahship that leaks into our being, that leaks into our world as we interact with it. And, uh, and there, there's, uh, there's total engagement. Yeah. And there's an honest wholeness and completeness in it. And so we feel at peace. We exude peace and shalom to people, and 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 you know, there's even in the Old Testament text. I forgot the reverence. Uh, uh, you know, it describes the days of the Messiah will come and tug at the corners of a Jew's clothing and say, "Tell us about your God." That's the call to us Jewish, uh, our followers of of this Jewish Jesus Messiah 
um, that that as we walk with him, the ideal the ideal behavior will be that we won't be screaming television evangelists. We will be walkers from the highest to the lowest and in between. Hmm. And people will say, tell us, how can you do this? How do you remain calm in this? And, and that doesn't mean we have to because Jesus was very well aware how human we were hmm. are. And yet we have those moments of, of magic where people want to know, and we want to know where we are amazed. Where did that come from? Because that was not me. That was the spirit of Jesus working through me in spite of, of how bad the coffee was this morning. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, what a journey. Um, we are short, really short on time, but I wonder if you might offer a brief prayer or benediction or blessing or something for us as we wrap up for today. Oh, God and Father, uh, we all live at the base of our mountains. We all sometimes are so aware that we are at the peak of our possible experiences. And we've all fallen into the poison of the Dead Sea at the lowest we could possibly be. And in the simplicity and the profundity of this story is the fact that at the highest mountain, Jesus is with us. At the lowest point, he is with us. And what does he want to do with us and our friends and our neighbors and our enemies? He wants to take us up to Jerusalem, hmm. to the place of Salem, the place of Shalom, so that we can live even now and especially now in the majesty and in the simple majesty and the simple reverence and the profound joy of knowing that you are with us and you are in us and you are above us and you are beside us and you are in front of us and you are behind us all the way. We bless you, God, for giving us, Jesus, for giving us in this, in that and in this time and place these understandings that fill us with an awe that is required to give, that is required in order to let go and let you. Oh, we bless you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>